This is Untextbooked, a history podcast for the future. My name is Gabe Hostin, and I'm your host. I'm 18 years old, and I just graduated from high school over a Zoom call. The world I grew up imagining is very different from the world I live in today. We keep hearing that these times are so unprecedented. Between the ongoing pandemic, the election, the state of climate change, and the movement for black lives. But none of these are simple issues with simple answers. Our history is complicated, and our textbooks don't always do it justice. That brings me to Untextbooked. Back in June of this year, my friend Victor gave me a call. I was bored out of my mind at the time, stuck in quarantine, and Victor said he had a cool opportunity for me. Victor and I and 13 other teenagers from across the U.S. got together to make this podcast. We spent the summer reading books about American history, medical history, food history, books about the civil rights movement, British imperialism, and piracy in the Atlantic. All of us wanted to know more about how the world got this way and what that means for the future. We interviewed 15 authors and historians who helped us take a closer look at the parts that skipped over in history class. Because the truth is, Our democracy is fragile, and we can strengthen it by educating ourselves. Our textbooks didn't prepare us for this moment, but knowing history will. We're starting this series with an interview from untextbook producer Lap Nguyen, who's interested in how nations mend their deep divisions. So I grew up in between two worlds one of which is Vietnam, and the other is the United States, the country that I now call my home. And for the longest time, I was someone who was trying to understand and navigate both of these worlds. The first was Vietnam, and doing some researching of my own, I was able to understand that through our history in Vietnam, we were both victors and losers, victims, and perpetrators of violence. And so, you know, although I have come to mostly understand the complex legacy of Vietnam, the country that I was born in, this new country that I am now proud to call a citizen of, I have a difficult time navigating the legacy that it has. That legacy, America's history of slavery, still lingers. Even before the Civil War ended, people were having difficult conversations about racism. And these are conversations we're still having today. Addressing the past is always hard. But America's not alone in this. We can look to other countries for guidance. At least, that's what the writer and philosopher Susan Neiman says. She wrote Learning from the Germans, Race and the Memory of Evil. Like Lapp, Susan Neiman also lives in two worlds. She's an American Southerner who has lived in Germany for decades. Back in the 1980s, during the Cold War, she became fascinated by the Germans' obsession with confronting their Nazi past. The Germans wanted to learn from it so they could keep it from ever happening again. And this approach felt very different from her experience of growing up in Atlanta. On this episode of Untextbooked, Lapp interviews Susan Neiman about why the Germans' memory of the Holocaust feels so different from America's memory of slavery and the Confederacy. I'm Gabe Hostin, and this is Untextbooked. Untextbooked. 
thank you for joining me today. So my, I guess my first question to you is, when and how did you recognize that there is a lesson to be learned from the Germans? I began thinking about these questions in October of 1982, when I first came to Berlin. It was shortly before the 50th anniversary of the Nazis' takeover, and the people that I would tend to hang out with were involved in the preparations for commemorating that anniversary, which basically went on for a year. There were people who did exhibits, people researching the history of their neighborhoods, uh, panel discussions, films, workshops, this kind of process, which the Germans have several long compound words for. The one that I prefer, Vergangenheitsaufarbeitung, which I translate as working off the past. This process was not supported by the government in West Germany. It was very different in East Germany. It was not very popular among a broad swath of even civil society. It was intellectuals, artists, a number of people involved in churches, in American terms, you would say this was a smallish group of liberals, you know, both coming from religious and secular perspectives. And uh, that was the first time that it occurred to me that the U.S. could learn a lot from this process. And I've been thinking about it ever since. And so I guess, um, you know, in your book, I actually did some searching and I tried to pronounce the word, but uh, on Google, it has a different, you know, a different version of it. So I guess I'm asking for like, what's the difference between Vergangenheitsbewältigung versus the version that you have in your book? Good question. What's the difference between Vergangenheitsbewältigung and Vergangenheitsaufarbeitung? So Vergangenheitsbewältigung means conquering the past. And at a certain point, people pointed out, it suggests you can conquer the past. You can do something and it will all be over. And since I don't believe that, I use the word Vergangenheitsaufarbeitung, working off the past, which suggests that it is a long, slow, multifaceted process that will probably have to be repeated uh, over and over through different generations. The immediate impetus to writing the book was the massacre of the nine churchgoers in Charleston, South Carolina in 2015. And it seemed as if the United States was beginning the sort of process of looking at its history that the Germans had been doing for such a fairly long time. And it seemed like I could contribute to the process. The book does... Uh, focus on case studies from the Deep South. It's not because I think that racism is only a problem in the Deep South. There are many Northerners who would like to see it that way. Um, But I view Mississippi and Alabama to some degree as a magnifying glass because they are so focused on their history. You cannot go anywhere in Mississippi without seeing a historical marker of some kind or... Uh, some memory of the Civil War. It's, it's often not accurate, but it's very much a part of people's lives. Even if, if it's mythologized history, it's much more present than anywhere I have ever been 
in the United States. But I can tell you, it's very interesting that in the United States, the 60s were about two things. Beginning, the beginning was about the civil rights movement and uh, then going on, they were about the war in Vietnam. In Germany, they were about realizing that your parents and your teachers had been Nazis, or if they weren't Nazis, they didn't do anything to stop them. And it was a moment of, a long moment of genuine rage. But after that rage, that generation, interestingly enough, went into education. So one of the points that you, you made in the book is, is that the GDR, um, which is East Germany for our listeners, despite all of its flaws, managed to successfully or more successfully implement this policy uh, because they use more of a top-down method, right? They're, they, you know, they pass laws, they reform the educational system. Very early on, they strongly persecuted all the Nazis compared to the West, would you say that that top-down is more effective at accomplishing goals, or would you say that it is kind of a grassroots, slow process? Ideally, I would like to have both. I would like to have strong leadership and an involved public civic discussion. That would be the ideal. Um, in fact, in post-war Germany, you had sort of you know, each was a partial way of dealing with the Nazi past, and therefore each had its flaws. Anything that comes from the state is usually not something that you have to work through yourself. And if you have to work it through yourself, uh, it's likely to go deeper, although it did go more deeply in the GDR than most people in the West uh, suspect. Ah, so yeah, that's kind of the interesting part, right? What do you think was the difference between, you know, what the German populace had compared to the South post-Reconstruction, right? You know, the Reconstruction was an era of top-down, you know, forced equality, essentially, in the South. And immediately afterward, you see a massive backlash, you know, leading to black codes, leading to segregation. All of these things happen because of the top-down approach. So what do you think was, um, you know, why was Germany more successful in the top-down method versus the South? Look, frankly, if Germany had not been an occupied country, and it was occupied, of course, by all the four allies, it's quite possible that you would have had a resurgence of Nazis. You know, there were, many of them went to Argentina and they absolutely thought that they would get back in power. Many Germans who I spoke to have said to me exactly, it was good that the occupation was long, both in the East and in the West. But it would be really interesting to imagine an alternative history of the United States in which the Union troops had stayed longer, had enforced civil rights for African-Americans, had stopped the Ku Klux Klan. But frankly, what people were more concerned about as the 1870s rolled on was you know, let's all be friends, let's shake hands and get the country going economically. 
And so they were perfectly willing to withdraw the Union troops and basically let the Klan take over. Yeah. And and I think that also brings back to the fact that we had an opportunity, but we dropped it basically after 1877. Now that we've dropped that opportunity, we see the lost cause narrative, you know, the idea of glorifying the Confederate history, right? Having statues put up, having this taught in textbooks for decades and decades and decades, that narrative has seeped in. And so I guess the, the question is, is it too late now for America to have its own version of working off the past? It is absolutely not too late for America to have its version of working off the past. No, not in the least. And it's happening right now. You have more white people, according to every poll, uh, supporting Black Lives Matter than ever supported the civil rights movement. You know, when you see something like that, or you saw police officers taking a knee in the wake of George Floyd's death, uh, it is not too late at all. I'm actually extremely hopeful that Americans really are confronting our past uh, at, you know, to a degree that we've never done before. Yeah. And reading through your book, especially as you journey through the Mississippi Delta, I look at all these stories of of people dedicating their lives to foster reconciliation. And yet you talk about just the simple sign that, you know, marked this was where the trial of Emmett Till was. And it keeps getting vandalized. You know, the hatred, the vitriol is still there. And it's so easy to be cynical of of Americans trying to work off the past because it just seems like you're hitting a brick wall every time there's a little progress. And yet in your afterward, there seems to be a hopeful tone. And I'm just curious, where are you seeing or what are you seeing that is making you feel so hopeful that America can face its past and can make a better future? Okay, so the question is, why, despite the, you know, really concerted efforts of Mississippians, black and white today, uh, to work for racial reconciliation, how can it be that the Emmett Till signs, commemorative signs, keep getting shot up again and again and again? But you see, this is exactly what you learn from the Germans. There's always going to be pushback, okay? Vergangenheitsaufarbeitung, working off the past, it's not like a vaccine. You don't do one shot of it and have people open their eyes and say, oh gosh, I'm so sorry I was a racist. I'm not going to do that again. Racism is a deep, complex structure, which involves not just propositions, it involves emotions. It's something that gets cultivated in childhood. So some people have compared uh, the German nations uh, working through the past to kind of national psychotherapy. And there's something in that. It's, It's a process that involves a lot of work. And I believe there's a process we can go through and come out the other side. And I think Germany shows that. Of course, you know, we've had racist murders in Germany just this March. Uh, Nine brown Germans were murdered in two shisha bars in a West German town. 
And believe me, an awful lot of Germans said at the time, my God, we've done this for decades. How can something like that still happen here? Well, <laughs> because there's always going to be pushback, you know? Um, it's, you know, there's this biblical claim that the sins of the fathers are passed on to the children for 10 generations. I think 10 generations might actually be needed, frankly. I mean, they're big sins. But 10 generations, you know, how long? You know, it's a couple of hundred years. See, my, my view about hope and seeing how far we've come is that if you don't recognize the progress we have already made, you are not going to be able to make any more because you're going to resign, you're going to be cynical, you're going to be depressed. Uh, believe me, I have depressed moments. I have moments when I can despair about the state of the world, but I strongly believe that if I stay in that despair or resignation or cynicism, I will do nothing. Hope is a moral obligation, okay? So it's a condition on acting morally that you believe it's possible to make it better and it has been made better in the past. But in order to sustain our hope, it's really important, I think, to learn some history and, you know, not just to be focused on the present and on all of the problems that we have in the present, but also say, look, we solved some problems before. We still haven't solved all of them. There's still violence. There's still racism. Um, but we saw, we made things somewhat better. So if we just roll up our sleeves and uh, get to work, we can solve a few more. That's, that's amazing. That's really good advice. People, I'll tell you, I'm glad you like that advice. Let me give you a warning. If you start spreading it around, they will call you, you know, naive. Um, they will say you're not aware of how awful the world really is. Don't be afraid to be embarrassed when people say it's not cool to be passionate about social change. And before we can actually change the present, we need to look at the past. Well, thank you so very much for taking part in this conversation today. You're welcome. And for our listeners, uh, Dr. Susan Neiman's book, Learning from the Germans, is available now at all the major bookstores. Dr. Susan Neiman is the director of the Einstein Forum in Potsdam, Germany. Lap Nguyen is a freshman at Harvard University interested in international studies. Our music is by Silas Bowen and Coleman Hamilton, who are a senior and recent graduate of Walnut Hill School for the Arts in Massachusetts. Untextbook is edited by Bethany Denton and Jeff Entman. Fernanda Rain is our executive producer. Our website is untextbook.com. Be sure to follow us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at Untextbook. That's where you'll find more stories from the present and the past that shouldn't be overlooked. 
You know, it takes a lot of work to make this show, and we need your help to keep bringing you great interviews like this one. Go to untextbook.com and click support. Your donation will make a big difference. Untextbook is a project of God History, an organization that believes that history can and should advance civic well-being for individuals, society, and the planet.